last Sunday as we were bringing our message to a close, I emphasized that the gospel, the good news, is always about abandoning every last instinct of self-preservation in favor of the greater good. It's about practicing the principle of selflessly giving. Because it's during those moments when we are going above and beyond, when we're carrying the load, the second mile, that opportunities arise for us to talk to others about the reason why. You don't have to be a gifted speaker. You don't have to be a knowledgeable theologian or a teacher. Peter puts it simply, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. We're called to share the reason for the hope that is in you. In other words, why we don't grieve as those who have no hope. And we're told to do this with gentleness and respect. In other words, practicing the principle of selflessly giving, speaking the truth in love. When I was uh, growing up, we used to sing this song at camp, and I asked Cindy about it, and she said, yeah, she sang it too. They were familiar with it. Uh, we have actually sung it here. Uh, it's called The Gospel in a Word is Love. And it simply goes like this. join in with me because we're going to wait and we're going to sing it as a round. Alright? So Cindy, you start the group. Ready? as Jesse read from 1 Corinthians 13. That chapter is not there by accident. The church at Corinth was divided over the issue of spiritual gifts. 
And so right in the middle of two different discussions of spiritual gifts, Paul gives this discussion of love. Faith, hope, love. The greatest of these is love. And that's the focus for our text, of our text this morning. The final of these six triads that Jesus gives us, one right after the other. And once again, our text begins with a dual preamble. You have heard. It was said. Jesus brings them together. You have heard that it was said. In rabbinic usage, that combination of those two parts always served as an introduction to a divine statement from the Torah. You have heard that it was said. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. May God add His blessing to our reading of the Word. In the text that I just read, there is a question from Jesus that haunts me. It's the question that he asks. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? We're guilty, aren't we? With Christmas just around the corner. What about our practice of sending Christmas cards or, or the giving of gifts to those who gave to you? Uh... How many have heard something like, oh, I didn't send them a card? We want to make sure that whoever's giving us a card, we send them one, loving those who love us. Whoever gave us a gift, we want to get them one, giving to those who love us. We're guilty. Scott McKnight says that this final triad brings into crystallization. It, it manifests, it illustrates, it makes clear the essential feature of the ethic of Jesus, the centrality of love. Our text cites an explicit Old Testament text, Leviticus 19.18, that says, love your neighbors. And then it adds something implied by some, though not all, of Jesus' contemporaries. And hate your enemy. Now there's no evidence from the Jewish world that anyone quoted the text from Leviticus 19.18 verbatim. Not from the time of Moses all the way to the time of Jesus. But it is clear that Jesus intentionally and I think probably provocatively, joined these two statements together. The neglected truth, we need to be loving our neighbors, and their disposition to others, the problem they had in hating and thinking ne negatively of others. 
Jesus was not dishonoring the text by failing to quote the remainder of the passage as I heard and read one writer say. That you should love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Jesus affirmed that elsewhere. Now, in fact, Jesus, as a matter of fact, elevated Leviticus 19.18 to fundamental and principal status. And I think that's evidenced by the fact that Peter, James, John, and Paul all understood this and repeated it in their own words in one place or another. And according to, Matthew, and according to Mark 12, Jesus himself said that this is the second greatest commandment. First, we're to love God with the totality of our being. And second, we're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So maybe the question, maybe the first question that we need to answer with regard to our text is, who is my neighbor? Now, I'm not asking for a definition of the word neighbor. I think we would all agree that neighbor means somebody with whom we are close in terms of relationship, next door neighbor, fellow townsperson, maybe even somebody in a close by village. Uh, Rich and, and Cindy live in Morocco, but I consider Morocco our, our neighborhood, neighbors. Uh, but in Jesus' day, the term was usually exclusively used as one's fellow Jewish compatriot. Uh, you realize, don't you, that this exclusive understanding is how we got the parable, the Good Samaritan? Jesus had just answered the question of a lawyer. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he answered it with a question. Well, what's written in the law? And, and that person responded to Jesus. Well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. And, and Jesus affirmed that. But then Luke tells us, desiring to justify himself... The lawyer asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? We're so used to thinking about the victim and the rescuer as neighbors that we forget that this was Jesus' scandalous twist to the story. Jesus deliberately wove together the particulars around the representatives of two groups, the Samaritans and the Jews. Two groups that the hearers knew weren't good neighbors to each other at all. But they were incorrigible. They were seasoned enemies. Uh, and you might as well visualize a, a leper uh, changing his spots as to think about a Samaritan being loved by a Jew. Or a Jew being loved and cared for by a Samaritan. And that was Jesus' point. Nothing less will do. And any and predominantly all Samaritans being despised by the Jews were despised because of racial, nationalistic, and religious reasons. All of which 
are high on the list when I hear people talking negatively about other groups of people. It's kind of like, imagine Bears fans and Packers fans, or Cubs fans and Cardinals fans on steroids. I mean, these people hated each other. And that's why that line in, in John 4 is so important when it says Jesus felt the need to go through Samaria. And so when Jesus calls on his hearer to make the point, which of these was a neighbor, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? The expert knew only too well the correct answer. And so did read, so did Luke's readers, and so do you and I. But the thing is, is did you notice that he couldn't even say the word Samaritan? When Jesus asked him, well, who was a good neighbor? He didn't say, well, the Samaritan was. No, he said, well, I guess the one who rendered aid. That's some pretty deep-seated hatred. And so with this understanding of neighbor in mind, then what does Jesus mean when he says, love your neighbor? You see, in reference to Leviticus, the Pharisees and the rabbis seized upon the immediate context. They saw it as an inconvenient command to love the neighbor, but they pointed out that Leviticus 19 is addressed to, to the congregation, to the people of Israel. So in other words, it gives instruction to Israelites on how and what their duties should be for their parents and to their neighbors, their brothers. But they were not, and, and it goes on to say, you're not to oppress or rob them. Your heart shall not hate your brother. You shall not take vengeance or bear any grudge against the sons of your own people, but love your neighbor as yourself. And so it was easy for them to ease the burden of the command and twist it to their own convenience. My neighbor, they would argue, is one of my own people, a fellow Jew, my own kin, somebody who belongs to my race, my religion, my church. And they were right that Leviticus 19 said nothing about strangers or enemies. So since the command was to love only my neighbor, it led them to say it must be, be taken as permission, even as an injunction, to go ahead and hate my enemy. Now, their reasoning is rational. Rational enough to convince those who wanted to be convinced and to confirm them in their own racial prejudice. And by the way... I have heard with my own ears people who were prejudiced citing the fact that Leviticus 19, when it says to love the neighbors, was only referring to their own people. But it has to be recognized as a rationalization. And really a, a spurious one at that. Because they evidently ignored the instruction earlier in the same chapter of Leviticus that they were to leave the gleanings of the field, they were to leave the leftovers of the vineyard 
for the poor and the sojourner who weren't Jews, who weren't part of their land, but they were resident aliens. And the unequivocal statement against racial discrimination at the end of the chapter, the stranger who sojourns with you shall be to you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Verse 34. Similarly, similarly in chapter 19, there shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. Now, they also turned a blind eye to other commandments which regulated their conduct toward the enemies. The rabbis must have also known very well the teaching of the book of Proverbs, which, by the way, the apostle Paul was later to quote as an illustration of overcoming rather than avenging evil. If your enemy's hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Maybe, just maybe, we need to look to the golden rule to define the meaning of loving your neighbors. We are to love the other. Jesus said, do unto others. He didn't specialize or specify that. The other. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. It means to love one's neighbor as Christ loves us. Even when we are disobedient and rebellious. So let's, let's go one step deeper. Because I think we also need to have an understanding of what the love of the enemy command means. Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pincus Lapide says this is the most frequently cited, yet least often practiced saying of Jesus in the entire New Testament. Our neighbor, as Jesus illustrated so plainly in the parable of this good Samaritan, is not necessarily a member of our own race, rank, or religion. She may not even have any connection with us. They may be our enemy, those who are after us with a knife or a gun. Our neighbor in the vocabulary of God includes our enemy. What constitutes him as our neighbor is simply that he is a fellow human being made in the image of God who is in need, whose need we know, and we are in a position in some measure to relieve that need or that burden. So what then is our duty to our neighbor? Whether he be friend or foe. Well, we're to love him. Moreover, if we go to Luke's account of the sermon, sometimes referred to as the Sermon on the Plain, our love for our neighbors will be expressed in our deeds, our words, and our prayers. First, our deeds, love your enemies, and do good to those who hate you. Love your enemies and do good. You see, the point he's making is that true love is not sentiment as much as service. Practical, humble, sacrificial service. Ladies, I'll ask you, how much would it mean to you if your husband's said all the time, 
I love you. I care about you. But did absolutely nothing to show that they loved you. And guys, I'm going to tell you right up front, because I've learned by mistake. Sometimes it says I love you a whole lot more to do something than to say something. Man, I can do just a couple little simple things, like make the bed, or throw a load of laundry into the, into the washer or dryer, or do the dishes. And that goes a whole lot more than just getting up and say, oh, I love you, honey. It's not sentiment as much as it is service. The Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky put it somewhere, love in action is much more terrible than love in dreams. Love in action it's much more terrible. It's, it's harder to reckon with. It's harder to, to deal with than just the love that we can show in our dreams or have in our dreams. Even though our enemy is seeking our harm, we need to be seeking their good. Isn't that how God treated us? Romans 5.10, Paul says that it was while we were yet sinners, while we were alienated, while we were on the wrong side of things that Christ died in order to reconcile us to God. Now if Christ gave himself for his enemies, shouldn't we also be giving ourselves for others, for ours? You see, words can also express our love, however. They need to be words that are addressed to our enemies. While at the same time, expressed to God. John Chrysostom, uh, one of the early church fathers, looked at both of these last two triads together and he saw this responsibility to pray for our enemies as the very highest summit of self-control. And looking back over the requirements of these last two triads, he looks at nine ascending steps First, we're not to take any evil initiative ourselves. Second, we're not to avenge another's evil. Third, we're to be quiet. And fourth, to suffer wrongfully. Fifth, we're to surrender to the evildoer even more than he demands. Sixth, we're not to hate. But, steps seven and eight, we're to love and to do good. And step nine, we're to entreat God himself on their behalf. Now unfortunately, prayer is often practiced as a last resort rather than seeing it as the summit of Christian love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who once said, this is a supreme command. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. I think... If intercessory prayer is an expression of the love we have, then it means to increase our love as well. It seems impossible for me to pray sincerely for someone without loving them. And impossible to go on praying for them without discovering that somehow my love for them is growing. So here's my challenge. We need to understand that 
Loving our enemies is not a magic formula. It's not a trick. We can't wait before praying for an enemy until we feel some love in our own heart. We have to begin to pray before we're conscious of loving them. And then I think we'll find out that our our love will begin to bud and even blossom. Jesus seems to have prayed for his tormentors actually while the iron spikes were being driven through his hands. Because the tense that is used is what is known as the imperfect tense. Something that keeps on going. He kept saying, Father forgive them for they know not what they do. We tend to see it as a one-time thing that was said once he was already hanging there. And if the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, what pride, what prejudice or sloth could justify our silence? I want to share with you a story. Cindy, because of your years around and and down in that area you might even be familiar with this true story about an elder in Christian churches his name was Tom Dace he was an elder at the Southside Christian Church in Springfield, Illinois here's what happened Tom did handy job, carpentry jobs. And uh, he was uh, doing an apartment house on uh, Scarrett Street in Springfield. I'm going to read it. When he started up his circular saw that morning, the noise awakened Frank Sherry, who was sleeping off a hangover from drugs and alcohol. In a stupor, Frank came down the stairway, picked up a claw hammer, and proceeded to hit Tom numerous times. Tom never regained consciousness and died the next day. Several days later, Tom's wife Florence went to the county jail where Frank was being held and requested to see him. When the police realized there was no animosity in the tone of her voice, and after a thorough search, she was allowed to see Frank. She stood looking into the cell while holding Tom's Bible in her hand. She said to Frank, you've done a terrible thing. You've taken away my husband, my livelihood, and my Christian partner. But I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to love you. She went on to say, you owe it to me to read this book. And on the inside cover, Tom has written what one must do to become a Christian. I want you to read that. Frank said nothing. He took the Bible and Florence left. By the way, the same story is printed as told by Bob Green, the minister at that time of the Springfield Southside Christian Church, who went with Florence to the jail. <coughs> Months later, Florence went to see Frank at a maximum security prison. 
and she sat with him in the cafeteria. Florence heard the good news that Frank was now a Christian. That's why I brought this, what Bob shared. Because Bob shared that when he saw Florence, he jumped up and shouted, Florence, oh Florence, I've been saved. I'm a new man. They embraced each other and all three of us wept, Bob said. He kept asking Florence, do you really forgive me? Do you really forgive me? We were overjoyed and anxious to hear all about his conversion. He opened up his Bible to Jeremiah 17.9 and read, The heart is the most deceitful thing there is and desperately wicked. No one can really know how bad it is. Only the Lord knows. He searches all hearts and examines deepest motives so that he can give to each person his right reward according to his deeds, how he has lived. <clears throat> Then he openly confessed his sins. He told of his misspent life, the drugs, the degrading music, the alcohol. And he confessed that he had received a dishonorable discharge from the Navy because of his addictions. Florence didn't stop there, though. She continually wrote the parole board asking for the release of the man who murdered her husband. And when Frank got out, which is why this article is printed where it is, Prison Outreach International, ARM, American Rehabilitation Ministries, by my friend Joe Garman, Frank spent the rest of his life involved in prison ministry. So my challenge continues. Not only to understand that loving our enemies is not a magic formula nor a trick, but wholeness, being perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect has to do with how we posture ourselves toward all human beings. Do I not only sound like I love others, but does it look like I love them? Let's pray.